0: Hi, and welcome to Adventures in Ventureland, a Rainmaking Venture Studio podcast, exploring the weird and wacky world of venture building. Together, we'll interview founders and corporate innovators to explore venture building from all angles. So thank you for joining us for this second episode of Adventures in Ventureland. My name's Hattie Willis, and I'm an Associate Principal at Rainmaking Venture Studio. But far more excitingly, I'm joined today by the incredible Stephen Rappaport. Stephen is a serial entrepreneur and also corporate intrapreneur. He's founded five of his own startups, and he's also been vice president for disruptive innovation at Unilever. Stephen, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today.
1: Pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: So digging straight in, you started your first company, Escape Uni Tours, at university. Would you say then that you're a natural entrepreneur? And if yes, what do you think is the DNA of an entrepreneur? And how does that actually differ to a normal careerist?
1: I mean, so I don't know if there's such thing as a natural entrepreneur necessarily. I I certainly think it's the only thing I've ever found that I'm any good at. Perhaps that's one of the same thing. But, and you know, when I think of all of the entrepreneurs that I know the most successful you know they're very very different people different values different behaviors so no I don't think there's such thing as a as a natural entrepreneur I think if if there's anything when I think back into my past about why I've found success in this I don't know what you'd call it lifestyle (laughs) rather than career path you know I think a lot about my parents and I I had I think I, I mean I was very very fortunate with my upbringing I had a mum who did and then sort of still does believe that I can achieve absolutely anything in the world and a dad that made me appreciate the urgent need for hard work and the fact that anything I've ever achieved I could have done slightly better on <laughs> and I think you know that combination of sort of valuing 18 hours of hard work in a day combined yeah. with the fact that I can achieve unusual things have meant that I've or extraordinary things I suppose have meant that I've I've gravitated towards startups and startuppery.
0: I love that. And do you think with that came a permission, it sounds like it's with your mum, you felt like you could get things wrong and try again. And your dad instilled that just keep trying mentality.
1: Yeah, definitely perseverance and graft. They have always been big, big things in my life and I hope they always are.
0: Amazing. So the first startup you had was pretty successful as a uni student you scaled the team you grew it to 30 salespeople in three years
1: yeah I think we had about 30 employees on graduation day I mean I very nearly failed university the only module I out and out failed in my whole time at university was entrepreneurship
0: that's so funny well maybe you can't <laughs> teach it you just have to live it <laughs>
1: Well, and yeah, I mean, I I think a lot of people do. I found my undergraduate degree super, super uninspiring and kind of painfully dull because it, it was an academic approach to learning business, which I just think fundamentally is a practical skill.
0: Brilliant. You then exited that to a business partner that you'd started with and moved on to your second startup.
1: Yeah, my second startup was called Seller's Market. And that was a business... Selling people's and businesses stuff on eBay for them and taking a commission on the sale. So this is before Amazon Marketplace existed. Obviously, e-commerce was big and eBay was the big disruptive distribution channel of the day. There was a time when famously eBay were mentioned in sort of national press for every day of a single year. Oh, my um, goodness. it It was an amazing time. What I learned there, though, was that selling other people's stuff on eBay, I mean, fundamentally, it was a logistics business with quite a big B2B component. What I learned was that you should do what you love and you find interesting, not just the thing that makes money, because I really didn't enjoy that business and nor did my business partner. So that business failed in less than a year. And he and I both looked at it because are now companies in the States, publicly traded that do an identical thing. So it was a great model, just a horrible fit with us as founders. So you
0: had a year of hell trying to chase the startup that you just weren't passionate about, largely because it was, was it because it was a B2B business that you weren't as excited or was yeah, the logistics yeah.
1: side? B2B has never been as exciting to me as consumer businesses. I love consumer. I love that human connection. And the challenge that you have to solve when you're serving people with human needs rather than companies with, commercial needs i suppose is i just get more energy from and fundamentally it's fairly complex logistics which you know i know people who that's just sounds like a dream to them but it's it ain't me
0: <laughs> so after you left you then started crash padder
1: yeah that's right
0: and so my research into it shows that it was basically airbnb in the uk at the time when airbnb was started so you you were exactly at the same time same idea <laughs>
1: Yeah, there came a point in our journey where it just saved time to say, we're like Airbnb. And everyone would <laughs> oh, okay, cool. <laughs> Whereas before that, trying to explain the concept of peer-to-peer accommodation, people looked at you like, no, you're a nut. But yeah, we founded Crashpad, I think, in the same month that Airbnb was incorporated. So emphatically, not a clone. And the idea really came from a long history of couch surfing. That's a community that I'm still a member of, and I I used a huge amount to travel. The idea being you stay on my sofa, and one day I'll stay on someone else's sofa in the community, not yours. It's a wonderful, wonderful movement. But there came a point where I just felt like it would be an upgrade for the host and the guest if there was a value exchange. I think, in fact, the, the idea came to me trying to go to sleep on someone's sofa... It was probably two o'clock in the morning. They wanted to stay up and <laughs> smoke a joint and play guitar. And I just desperately wanted to go to sleep. And so we tried to premiumize couch surfing and we had some success. In fact, it was a great business. I'm so proud of that company. We built a very strong community. We had a larger host base than Airbnb in three markets, but well, you know, only three. And to be clear, had they not acquired the business they would have overtaken us in time because it was whilst building that company that I began to learn about things like venture capital. And I began to really understand the business that I'd built from a strategic perspective and not just tactical transactional. And I learned about things like network effects and how important they are, particularly for an international accommodation business. The value of having a bigger community in another country is really high and there's never going to be A local challenger to Airbnb, right? It was a wonderful, wonderful business. I enjoyed it so much. I really deeply understood the importance of serving a small number of people superbly before trying to serve a lot of people well. The value of connecting your community with one another so that they can tell you what they need. A lot of the commercials or rather the digital side of commercial strategy I, I just loved it and unfortunately you know we realized part way through the journey that we were in a different battle than the one we thought we were in and we'd already lost the one we were actually in <laughs> so um yeah it was it was a wonderful journey and a fantastic outcome
0: but was that a hard realization that you'd been fighting the wrong war
1: oh god it was heartbreaking it was heartbreaking And it's funny you know people will look at and not, not very often, I don't think my career is very interesting to most people, but people look at my career and go, wow, you sold a company to Airbnb, you know, that must be a highlight. And honestly, the reality was so different, because I, that was really ultimately admitting defeat, rather than some triumphant outcome. There were obvious upsides, I went, went from very poor to fairly wealthy overnight, that was interesting, and not great, as a lot of people might imagine, but interesting. And the experience of handing the baby over to new parents was how my co-founder Dan and I described it. it was really hard. We finally admitted that we'd been beaten and then spending time at Airbnb's HQ, those smart, incredible people. I have just nothing but love and respect for the company and the team for Brian. He's just the most extraordinary leader. Honestly, to see him in action was a privilege. But it was hard to see that, you know, we, we'd been beaten. It was hard not to have your ego scratched a little bit by that. But then on the plus side, we had this audacious vision for the way that people might travel in the future. And it was wonderful to see that that vision was going to become a reality. It's just hard not being the one to, you know, yeah. to drive.
0: Because I have to be honest, I remember when Airbnb was the dinner party discussion of aren't they all mad? Yes. No one's yes. going to do this. I'm not going to trust someone in my home. I do think Crash Pad at Airbnb are great examples of genuine business models that were able to not just disrupt a space, but to shift a, a consumer behavior at a mass scale, to, to act in a way that we never before thought we'd act. I think it's exceptional that you saw the behavior was ready before anyone else did.
1: Well, thank you very much. Like I said, mum it's all helpful. <laughs> do you know the, the thinking back to that period probably the the best feeling in the the whole exit we had an event in london for our community to announce the fact they were going to be becoming part of the airbnb community and it was something that we insisted on we took our relationships with our hosts very seriously and the airbnb team were there and we all got together and we announced to our hosts you are becoming part of this bigger community and What felt great was, first of all, their reaction, which was initially disappointment. And you get this in the UK a lot, the kind of what the, you know, the American (laughs) overlords coming to do their thing. But when we helped them to understand Airbnb's ethos and their values and their principles and the quality of their service and their technology, everything, we were able to sort of prove to our community that the best thing we could do by them was hand them on to other custodians. And And, you know, I'm still in contact with a lot of those hosts now. And I think we made the right decision by them as well as by us.
0: Because you had thousands at the point of exiting, right? Or, or of handing over.
1: Yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a big community.
0: So after Crash Padder exited, you then started Packed Coffee. So you yeah. moved from doing a peer-to-peer sharing platform, which is all about network effect, to an e-commerce subscription business, where yes. you get your coffee delivered monthly. So how did Packed start? Where did that idea come from?
1: So it was about a month before Earnout finished at Airbnb. So after you sell a business to someone, there's normally this period of time where you have to do something far less fun than building a company <laughs> for far longer than you want. <laughs> and luckily it was an enjoyable period, but by the end I was, I was ready to go, go back to building. So about a month before the Earnout ended, I had the idea all packed. It's funny because I was going from peer-to-peer accommodation to subscription commerce. But as an entrepreneur, I never thought about it in those terms. You know, I went from serving one group of people with a complex set of problems to a different group of people with a complex set of problems. So as a founder, your behaviours don't really change. You, know, you, you engage your insecure overachiever. You assume that you don't know anything. You go and meet the people who you believe have a problem and you just do everything you can to learn about them and their lives and their problem and experiment with solutions. And eventually one day you realize that you've built a subscription commerce business because that's the way that the investment community understand the solution. But really, I haven't found that founders talk in those terms very often.
0: (laughs) I just want to pause on that. The way you just described founders, actually, when you look at serially successful entrepreneurs who've done it time and time again they say very similar things often very humble people who go I I was expecting to get it wrong so I went and talked to the customers and tried to understand what they really needed before I built something and often when you think about entrepreneurship I I still find even though lean startups been a thing for years now and there's been a lot of talk about test and learn with your customers being customer centric I still feel like there's a um, a misnomer in the community that entrepreneurship is this gut instinct that I have this idea and I know it's going to work and I'm just going to chase it down until it does. But that's not at all how you see it.
1: No, no, that's that's not at all how it works. <laughs> in my in like in my limited, very limited experience, it's not how it works. But I certainly experienced that at Unilever. I think there was this belief that entrepreneurs are in some way magical, and what <laughs> I try to help people understand is actually it's it's simply I don't actually think it's, a, it's not intellectually or commercially harder than what most corporate employees do. I've found it a great deal easier. I couldn't have done the jobs that my colleagues at Unilever did. I, I couldn't have succeeded in their roles because they were much harder for someone with my, I suppose, <laughs> skills or behaviours or values. But it is just as rational. I don't want to say formulaic because it's not formulaic, but it's logical and rational principles and operating models which have, have sort of emerged over time certainly i've only become aware of them fairly late and it's more a case of sort of learning about one and then realizing that that's the way that my business had behaved but yeah sort of a, you know, acting on assumption and validating or invalidating assumption as you go would be something that you experience in a startup that you don't typically see in a, in a corporation radical candor is is far more likely to come from a startup team than a corporate team and I put you put that down to the fact that in a startup, everyone only cares about the success of that business, whereas in a corporate, people largely care about the success of their career within that corporate environment because they're disconnected from the success or failure of the corporation. You know, not no one person at at Unilever could dr- dramatically change its future. Not not even members of the C suite.
0: And the incentives are just misaligned, really, aren't they? I mean, that's we can. We can come back to that. But I think it's a challenge of anyone trying to innovate within a corporate is their career is not even going to see the outcome of that innovation likely.
1: No, I think that's absolutely right. And and you're very, you know, you're you're heavily financially disincentivized from taking risk in a corporate environment. And it's very unfashionable for, for people to admit that within a corporation, but you only have to move out a short distance to see. It's kind of self-evident.
0: And the other reason I pick up this point about the humility to go and test and learn is that from my understanding, both crash powder and Pact came from personal places of need as a trigger. You know, you're a coffee lover, you're a sofa surfer, but even when you know you've got the need, I think think that's sometimes the point it's most dangerous for entrepreneurs when you feel the need so strongly. It's so hard not to believe that others will feel it with the same passion as you do. Yeah. how did the idea for Paps come about
1: well it's do you know it's interesting I'm sure we'll come on to it but I am right in the middle of this journey with my next business I am in the process of finding product market fit for a problem which I found I had myself and it is it's a piece of mental gymnastics that I'm still not great at and the way I solve that is I tell everyone around me that it's a problem that I'm not great at it <laughs> help me to avoid stepping on the a landmine but yeah that's a challenge to fall in love with a problem before falling in love with the solution that you've come up with and I think again looking at common points of failure in corporate environments is that people tend to have an idea often a senior person has an idea they fall in love with hand to someone junior and ask them to execute that thing and no one's taking the time to fall in love with the problem that they believe that thing solves so in the case of packed coffee to answer your question the problem i had was running out of coffee that i loved and i realized that i had that problem when i spent yet another saturday morning traveling by tube from balham to borough market my wife was out of bed in fact my fiance at the time we got we got married a week after i founded Packed.
0: amazing Um,
1: yeah she was absolutely delighted about (laughs) But, uh, yeah you know i was I was getting the train to borrow to buy coffee, and I thought god i wonder I wonder if anyone else on this train is on their way to buy coffee on an hour long round trip. I was eating into my weekend, and I realized that when I ran out of coffee that I loved, I would immediately invest quite a lot of time or money solving the problem, and I went to find if other people had that problem and and wanted the solution that that I wanted. I think from that train journey to my first paying customer was about forty eight hours. We quickly cobbled together a non-functioning MVP in my dining room, It popped on Facebook, had 100 paying customers in a very short space of time. And believe it or not, we had kind of half a million pounds of venture funding about a month after that, ready to go off and start building. And thankfully, we found that a huge number of people share those problems. And in fact, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of heartache at the moment, and I don't want to make light of the situation around COVID, because I know it's caused a huge amount of pain for individuals, for businesses, for governments. But I'm pleased to say that PACT is one of the the businesses that's picked up a tremendous tailwind as a result of people spending more time at home. I I believe PACT is now... I'll get into trouble with with Paul, who runs the company, but I believe Pact is now the largest independent coffee roaster in Europe. We've got three years of strong profit behind us, very strong double-digit growth. Yeah, so I was pleased to learn that a lot of other people shared that problem and Mm. liked the solution that we built for it.
0: And so when you were going about falling in love with the problem, not the solution, but doing the MVP version, I think people get confused with the term MVP or minimum viable product and often think that it's just the rubbish first version of your actual full product. And actually that, that's not really quite what it is. I mean, it's more about testing the fundamental assumptions, right? So how did you go about testing those assumptions and that demand early on?
1: Yeah, so what's well, the first thing to say on minimum viable product? Airbnb, they banned that. And you're right, in startup, in fact, I believe it was probably 12 years ago. It's really, it's really very old at this point <laughs> and it's still in corporate environments like, um, like this new breakthrough way of thinking. So the way that we, at, at Airbnb, they said uh, minimum awesome product, MAPs was all they could talk about. And at Vital Stride, which is my new business, we're, we're building a minimum lovable product.
0: I love that. That's the best yeah. one I've come across. Oh, that, that makes me happy inside.
1: I can't take I'm a lovable product co-founder Helen came up with that and I I love it as well it reminds you that in prototyping you are meant to cut corners but you're not meant to cut corners that customers are are aware of as in you take on all of the pain you don't kick it onto them and expect them not to mind because they do mind a great deal when companies expect you to do unnecessary work on their part we all hate so in practical terms how did I figure out then what features are Uh, minimum lovable product needed. Well, for Pact, I acquired customers through Facebook at probably an enormous expense in order to gain the insight about what they need. And I gained those insights by delivering all of their coffee myself in person. So our first 500 customers or so, I met almost all of them in their home, hand-delivered the coffee, asked them some basic questions. So I told them that I was the founder, that I appreciated them giving us a try. I asked them why they tried, what they hoped it was going to be like, and if it was their second bag rather than their first, I'd ask them what it was actually like and why they would now second. The people that didn't and want another bag and cancelled again would get a phone call and I'd, I'd just ask them all about it. And I found that people were really forthcoming, especially if you show your vulnerability and, and, and say, I'm trying to achieve something really worthwhile here, but I, I don't know how to do it and I need your help. So help me understand the service that you need in your life, that you would love. This new feature, did that work for you? I notice you've used it once, but you've never used it again. Why is that? What didn't happen the way you wanted it to? And just obsessively sponging any bit of insight you can about the people you're hoping to serve. And I mean obsessively and in a way that doesn't scale.
0: And I think the other thing is, just to clarify, because when you talk about that not shortcutting, so the customer has to do the work, what you're not saying is that that means that you have to present the perfect fully finished answer, you know, you can still have that vulnerability to say okay. we're working it out, you can inform it. And as long as the customer feels a part of that journey and, and you're not engineering pain in for them and friction, but as long as they feel part of that journey, then they're, they're much more willing to keep going and keep testing with you, right?
1: Exactly. But and as I say it's about intelligently cutting corners. Like fake you know, fake door tests, which are now relatively common and I'm sure everyone's aware of where you offer something for sale on an e-commerce site that doesn't exist to see how many people would have purchased. And you know, the, the number of times I've seen that run with stock imagery and a crappy product name, and you know, so it's just presented in a way that you would never want to buy the thing. And then you return a negative from the test, but it's a false negative. But you, you know, it doesn't take a great deal of empathy to avoid some of the, the obvious mistakes.
0: I love that you talked to the first 500 customers. Religiously, that's amazing.
1: I'm doing it again this time around. It's just, it's the greatest currency for learning that you can have founder. And by the way, that never stopped at PACT. There was a time when we were a 100 full time employees, and at midday, every day, a bell went. You stopped what you were doing, and every single person in the company called 10 customers. And it was 10 people who'd signed up that day or the previous day to say hello and thank you. And this is me and my job. This is how you can get hold of me. You know, I'm a software engineer or I'm an accountant no one was off the hook and you know it it was a tremendous tremendous cultural ritual for the business and it enabled everyone to do their job better
0: and literally putting the customer at the center of your day 12 o'clock bang on Mm. that's a, a very clear indicator of what you guys care about so what were some of the other things that you had to learn maybe the hard way as a founder and how did you learn them
1: what have i not had to learn everything I mean I've had to from basic bookkeeping to hiring to OKRs the I mean there's just there's the list it's just everything that I do I've learned on the job and I definitely learn by mistakes rather than learn through other people's mistakes which is frustrating at times but that's the cards I've been been dealt.
0: (laughs) And Just before you left Pat there was a pivot from predominantly being consumer facing to moving towards business facing was that a hard move for you and for the company
1: the, the b2b move wasn't hard um, so that was really layering in another distribution channel so pact is a really omni-channel business um, direct consumer is by far the largest channel that we have today and have always had and the fastest growing b2b was just again it was a reflection of Well, it it came from that close relationship with our customers. There was a time when we weren't growing nearly as fast as we believed we could. And the way that we solved that was to talk to our customers about their habits and find out when they wanted to hear from us more. Rather than trying to shove more coffee down their throats at home, which is sort of ethically questionable. We started listening to their feedback a little more closely about coffee outside their home. And something we heard time and again was you know damn you guys you ruined coffee for me at work I don't drink coffee in the office anymore I drink tea or I have a second pack subscription and we thought oh, that's that feels like an opportunity and I think a couple of years later we supplied offices around the UK with a couple of million pounds worth of coffee and NPS which is the the metric I care most about and NPS from our B2B service I think approaching 90 which is wow. Apple standard In fact, on a consumer business, it's 78, which is still, I'm still very, very pleased with, but no, so the B2B wasn't hard. What was difficult was that just prior to that, I had to restructure the company and make a round of redundancies. And during that period, or probably in the year that followed, I decided that I wasn't the person to run pack through this next chapter, which is sort of profitable, self-funded, fairly rigorous growth. And that was not an easy period
0: again kind of letting a baby go and handing over to a, a new parent did mm, it feel like
1: very much so I mean luckily in this case the parent was Paul Turton who is like if if anyone was going to give you confidence about handing your baby over it's Paul he was amazing and he and I did a very very deep detailed job of, of designing and, and executing that handover in a way that was kind of easy for him to hit the ground running and to, to make the business his own and for the team you know I think particularly following a, a really significant round of redundancies, which is, in fact, when people talk about a restructure, of course, <laughs> that was pretty heartbreaking. But for the team that remained, the core team left in the business, you know, they needed to understand why the business they were working for was now stronger, more stable, with a brighter future than the one a month earlier, because it, it normally doesn't feel that way for those, for those uh, men and women on the team. So, we did a really careful job of planning and executing that, and I think it made it a lot easier all round.
0: So, the other question that this sparked two questions really. One is around venture capital funding, because you said earlier on that it was one of the things that Airbnb had that's just so much harder to compete with that scale of funding. And obviously, again, with PACT, you were able to. Get that funding very early, probably because you had such incredible customer validation so quickly. How was the process of getting venture funded and and how did that change how the business
1: model grew and scaled? Mm. So venture, yeah, I mean it came relatively easily because the business, you know, we proved product market fit very early on. I think I built a really strong team. And it was a time of plenty in London. it was, it was a good time to be raising money. So we did raise a bit. I think at this stage, we've raised about five and a half million of of venture and a million of of debt on top. How does it change the business? Yeah, it's interesting because it's something I'm doing very differently with my new business I was never running the business to raise money you know we were raising money to run the business but I probably got a bit more pride than I should have from the size of the checks that we were able to raise and the pace of upside momentum and this kind of thing I think they were m- my mistakes that I made but I was probably too easily influenced by the views of other investors that I was speaking to and it's your closest strongest greatest allies have their own objectives an upside momentum is great for a vc <laughs> it's yeah. kind of meaningless for the business itself i mean it's a pure vanity so yeah one of the things i'm definitely doing differently today than i did in those very early days is blocking out market signals and noise and any consideration of raising money until there's a really compelling urgent reason to do it
0: You're listening to Adventures in Ventureland, a rainmaking venture studio podcast with this week's special guest Stephen Rassaport, serial founder and former VP for Disruptive Innovation at Unilever. If you're enjoying the episode please do take a minute to like, share and follow at the end. But for now back to the podcast. After you made the hard decision to leave PACT and hand over, You then moved to Unilever, so a very different move for someone who's always been an entrepreneur and where that's come easily. Why the move to work in a corporate?
1: Yeah, a really good question. So first of all, like Unilever, I'm such a fanboy of that business. And I was for years prior to joining and I remain so today. They're such a great company. And I sometimes sort of wish that the fit, (laughs) my fit hadn't been so horrendous. But I can look look at it and say, you know, that's not a place that I enjoyed working. But my God, I want that business to thrive. And so the reason I joined is I'm inspired by their vision. Paul Pullman, who was the CEO when I joined, uh, it's now Alan Jope. But Paul has always been my hero CEO. And I know as tech founders, you know, there was a time when it was Zuckerberg. Obviously, now he's the devil elon musk but perhaps steve Jobs. i don't know for me it was always pullman i just he's an inspiration remains one today he's amazing and i just thought do you know that's a business i'd love to be a part of they were fighting fairly hard for me to join and although i looked at the challenge which was enable that company or any company that size to execute disruptive innovation at scale I looked at the challenge the way it was being approached I thought "Mm, okay this is going to be tough if I can help I'd be delighted to and yeah it was a combination of loving their values and feeling you know excited by the challenge that they they were laying in front of me and you know that knowledge that I didn't know how I was going to do it I mean it hasn't stopped me so far (laughs)
0: the biggest lure I think you can give an entrepreneur is there's a clear problem you just gotta work it out yeah
1: yeah, exactly
0: so can you tell us more about what the role actually involved
1: the role was to come in and to build four disruptive businesses being totally emancipated from all of the operating model that Unilever employs to, to execute to grow their core business and to run their core business in doing so notice the points of friction uh, that, that aren't experienced by entrepreneurs outside of world. and notice the the areas of strategic advantage and in doing so propose a model that would enable them to execute disruptive innovation at scale profitably and at scale. Easy. So that, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's what I set about. We had some really good success in the early days I think I mean my first big lesson is trying to be totally separate from the mothership is just a bad idea it's you know this idea of kind of you know if you want to go fast go alone if you want to go far no. like a team. <laughs> I was definitely sort of expected to go fast and far right. <laughs> alone. and yeah I think not not through any sort of negligence or malice but just because it was the business trying to do something new for the first time I I think there were some areas where failure was probably designed into the endeavor from day one
0: it feels like it's almost become a new realization of corporates that they tried it firsthand really closely intertwined in the corporate and then they realized they kept killing things So then the next move was, okay, well, let's keep it totally separate and then we'll protect it. But they kind of missed the part where the reason the corporate should be innovating is because they have advantages to use. So if you can't get hold of any of the advantages and then you're not actually a startup operating as a startup in the wild, you've kind of lost the best of both worlds.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. So you tie both hands behind your back rather than just one. Uh, Definitely, I would say that Disruptive innovation at scale carries no possibility of success without strong buy-in from the C-suite, which my role and my appointment hadn't had. <laughs> which I learned in my first meeting with Paul Pullman, which I went to as you know, based on what I've just said, jittery and excited, and then I left thinking, okay, yeah, we've we've got some problems to solve. And then we went from there. We we ended up ultimately getting sign-off from the CEO, CFO, COO for a GPLP structured corporate incubator that would, exactly as you've said, look, look to harness and magnify the strategic advantage that Unilever would have over, yeah, it's a misconception that corporates are competing with startups, they're competing with the venture industry <laughs> and that helps to bring into sharp focus the fact that they're competing with an industry which is far better funded.
0: So do you think corporates can still compete with VCs if they can unlock that unfair advantage?
1: Unquestionably, they can on paper. What I would say is that the instances where they've successfully done so in the market are very, very few and far between. And they tend, you know, everyone will say, yeah, but what about Nespresso? dig into the Nespresso story, it doesn't present a repeatable model for success. So I think in theory can and I think in practice almost none do however I do think that will change
0: um, um, so, sorry, and so so go
1: on and you know the Unilever that I left I was only there two years and actually the transformation in people in language skills the quality of the conversations that were being had it was enormous progress in two years for a business that size I still think it probably brought them you know Five percent of the the way through the journey that most experienced startup founders and VCS you know have, have been but it's you know it's early days
0: yeah and I think one of the things that corporates get frustrated by sometimes certainly when I've talked to them about innovation is this idea that we place the entrepreneur and the entrepreneur at such different levels in our heads but it, I don't think it's about a difference in talent or in intellect or anything other than it being a difference in experience and they are fundamentally different professions.
1: I'm not sure it's only experience I would say it's experience uh, environment and incentive.
0: Yeah you'd never see a founder not take equity in the wild and yet I've very rarely seen a corporate accelerator program give equity to anyone to actually incentivize them.
1: Yeah, so I, I completely agree with that. I think, yeah, actually, the founders that I know, they don't do it for the money. And you look at, I don't know, maybe a great example is Alex Chesterman. Is he building Karzu for money? I, th- I don't know if the papers are to be believed. He, he earned 350 million pounds from Zoopla, so he's probably not desperate for money. I would imagine that, and I'm making huge assumptions, I don't know Alex well, but I'd imagine there's something in the intell- intellectual challenge and the commercial challenge that are incentive as well i think what i mean is that in within a corporate environment you are incentivized yes financially but also just sort of socially and through norms and signaling to behave in a certain way and it's not a way that's conducive to being productive as an entrepreneur and as a founder Because there's a lot of peacocking there's a lot of need to communicate to huge groups of people there's definitely a huge need for success theater and to cover up failure and you know Oh, I don't know. A lot of my ex-colleagues would bristle and they would disagree with that.
0: But we all have to be honest, when you're on a comfortable salary and, you know, you're enjoying your day job a lot more than any of your peers in a corporate, the people who sit in innovation teams, they know they have it good. They (laughs) know that they're they're doing a a job that is 10x more fun than anyone else and that they've got more freedom and that they've got just a better day-to-day. And so if you're doing that on a nice salary... Mm. it's just harder to kill things, whereas if you're a founder and actually this is all you've got going and, you know, if you don't succeed at this one, you need to move on to the next thing quite fast. It's just mm. a, a, an opportunity cost question for me anyway.
1: Um, you know, I spoke to a lot of people when I first joined. I did an audit of, of countless projects which had sort of lost between, I suppose, one and, and actually in one case, £75 million pounds before being shut down and i and i asked all of the founders similar questions and one was sort of how far through your budget and your time that you all ended up burning how far through that were you when you lost faith in the idea and on average the answer was 20 percent of the way through i like, okay so what did you do then and they simply tried to access more budget and more time to make that not be true anymore They were worried that shutting down the project might make them less relevant or less needed within the business. And, you know, what's interesting as a founder going through the journey right now, I am unpaid. I've got three kids, a wife with a very grown up job. (laughs) if If I lose faith in this idea, that's the day I stop working on it, because why on earth would I do anything other than that? I love Astro Teller, the beautifully named head of, of Google X, said in an interview I was listening to that one of the first things he had to do when he took that role was to define failure because he realized it meant different things to different people. And they decided that failure was the first calorie burnt on an idea after you realized you you're working on the wrong thing. And yeah. I... yeah. Isn't it beautiful? I've got goosebumps.
0: So I used to run accelerator programmes within corporates as well. And we inherited a couple of ideas a couple of times onto the programme. We we had a hard rule that no previous ideas should be allowed on, but obviously that rule got broken very quickly. They'd had, you know, some of them two years and and millions spent on them. And we kept trying to kill them on the accelerator because it was very clear they were not at a level Mm -hmm. of the other ideas. And it was so hard to kill them because the sunk cost mentality, even if the people assessing the ideas, not even the people working on them, but the people assessing them who felt like they couldn't be the one to kill it. It's just mad. And this idea that as an individual you failed if your idea doesn't get to market and scale is I think the most deadly one in corporate innovation, because that's, you know, again, if you kill it fast, that's success. Right.
1: Yes, exactly. But educating people on why that's the case is, is hard. And, you know, it, mm. it just takes, as I said, I do think the corporate community will get there. And I think there's tremendous progress in some areas and in some businesses, not in all. But I think they will get there. It just takes time because so many people, at so many levels of the organisation need to understand that, which will be a very alien way of thinking. Mm. And the further up the business, the more authority, more accountability, responsibility they have, the further they are from the experiments that are taking place and the consumers. So yeah, it's a bit of a slow burn.
0: What do you think needs to be true for a corporate to actually come up with scale and build those disruptive businesses that can survive?
1: So where to begin? So there's a few things. I think, so first of all, there's some behaviors from venture that corporates would just do well to adopt because you know venture capital now that that is a long-running experiment and that model has been honed and is continually being honed so starting with the venture model seems to make a lot more sense than starting with the corporate model and trying to iterate towards startup just there's there is a proven published playbook so just start with that and that would mean a, a huge portfolio of bets, the expectation that most will result in you losing your money, the need to therefore rapidly double down on the ones that look like they're going to win. Uh, light touch governance. And what I mean by that probably is go and observe how governance works in a startup and replicate it. Don't do what you believe is light touch because it will be crippling <laughs> heavy touch for an entrepreneur and relearn all of the performance metrics that you live and breathe you know corporates are hugely data-driven and metric-driven environments which is a wonderful thing but the numbers you use to describe progress for a corporation bear no resemblance to the numbers that you use to describe success and progress in a startup especially in that journey from zero to a million of revenue really they're A lot of it is, again, it's a published playbook that very few founders or VCs would disagree with. So starting with that is a good idea. Finally, I think there's, and I've I've sort of written about this a little bit, I've written about the four freedoms, which I think are strategic enablers. And I've given this a lot of thought. I know it might sound a bit bombastic and it might lead to some people just stopping listening. And that's fine. (laughs) But without... All four of the following four strategic enablers, I don't think there's any possibility of a corporation delivering successful disruption at scale. The four enablers are aligned incentives between corporate and founder, delegated authority to the founder and their team, strategic freedom for the startup, and long-term financial commitment. So, in order. (laughs) Aligned incentives means do away with your bonus, massively reduce someone's base salary so that they have significant skin in the game and a degree of peril if it goes wrong. You should also remove their job security. And I know these sound like big, scary things, but it's what you need to to compete with founders in the wild. Because if you go toe-to-toe with somebody who has perfectly aligned incentives and no job security, they will beat you probably because people do what they're incentivized to do eventually. And that person would be incentivized to eat your lunch. The other way to think about aligned incentives is no one earns money until everyone earns money. So it's not about changing your annual bonus structure, but rather saying, okay, this will be a business that we the parent would choose to acquire if it existed in the wild when the following things are true. So if you make those following things true, we will acquire it from you for similar to market terms. Aligned incentives, two delegated authority that means no one should be able to make any decisions unless they have aligned incentives it's as simple as that so don't give a founder aligned incentives and then ask their better paid line manager to sit on the board and make bigger decisions than them because you will undo all of the good that you've just done with aligning the founders incentives strategic freedom this is a bit of a hairy one but i think the founder needs the freedom to pivot the business based on what's right for the business even if it means pivoting out of an area which is of strategic relevance for the corporate. Now, why do I say that? (laughs) Enabling a founder to do that is the only way to keep them honest if they lose faith in the thing that they're building. If you take away strategic freedom for a founder, if you find the thing you're working on might not work or you learn something that means you've lost faith in your idea, you have the total freedom to find a better idea or a better way to solve that problem classic example when you know you'd get these great consumer problems uh, related to sleep or gut health or you know really important globally relevant unsolved problems and then you'd be constrained to solving them with a tea bag which is a massive constraint <laughs> now it throws up loads of questions like what do you do if a business pivots outside an area you're interested in my answer to that would be you, you build a mechanism for the founder to acquire the company back from the, the corporate. But as I said, I think without it, uh, you're just baking failure into your your disruption efforts. And finally, an obvious one: long-term financial commitment. Successful VC funds don't deliver a return until their seventh or 10th year. And I believe latest research says that that's being pushed out a lot from seven to 10 to 14 to who knows what. The reality is, very few corporate CEOs will be in their role for that long. The project sponsor certainly won't be. Internal colleagues also won't be. Lots of people at General Motors, I'm sure, handering and ask, why couldn't we build Tesla here? I think the answer is because it would have been shut down on 11 separate occasions, having burned billions more money than they probably have in reserve. <laughs> So the business needs to carve out of not your operating p l but rather the balance sheet, fresh capital, which can't be touched for seven or 10 years. Yeah. And I That's... think that makes,
0: uh, that makes so much sense when you just put it back in that context of what you said earlier about you're not just competing with startups, you're competing with venture capital. Mm, 100%. But yes, I, I couldn't agree more. I'm uh, I'm very relieved as he went through that. I thought, I really hope he doesn't say anything that disagrees with the uh, Remaking y Studio model, or I'll have to argue hard against it. But thank goodness, we're very aligned, students. so that's fine.
1: I thought it's worth I don't blow smoke. But I think whilst at Unilever, I spoke to everyone that does disruption as a service. I mean, literally everyone that would come and claim to build an incubator or an accelerator. And I think my parting advice to Unilever was... If you're going to do this, do it with rainmaking, because they're the only one with the four incentives in place. They're the only ones that won't get rich off the fees and therefore yeah. not the outcome.
0: <laughs> so now looking forward, I have to ask you, you've got this new idea. Can you tell us more about the new idea, what it's called? I can,
1: Yes. Yeah. So it's called Vital Stride. It's very, very early days. We're pre-revenue. We're pre-minimum lovable product. We're in the process of building it. But I'm really fascinated by the relationship between training and injury, injury prevention, injury recovery for recreational runners. Personally, I'm a passionate runner and I have been for about 10 years. That means that I've been injured for about three of those 10 years (laughs) because I'm the norm. Uh, What I've learned from speaking with hundreds and hundreds of runners over the past few months is that moving away from elite athletes altogether because they're exceptionally well served you know most of us run for two reasons and when i say most of us so one in five adults runs once a week or more so it's the world's most popular That's... sport it's the world's fastest growing sport arguably the easiest and cheapest to get into because um mm. kids, i believe all you have to do is take your shoes off you don't even need to put trainers on <laughs> and people run for two reasons first of all pleasure and mental health and secondly, physical health and performance. But balancing pleasure and performance is impossible because it requires two things. A deep, detailed understanding of how the body works. That's biomechanics, yeah. musculoskeletal issues, injury identification, treatment, training load, nutrition, sleep. You, know, you need a level of knowledge which is out of, out of reach for most people, even those with an internet connection. And then once you have that, you need the self-control to apply it. <laughs> and I think that's an even bigger hurdle for most of us. So as, as a result, 23% of runners are injured today, like right now, 23%. That's huge. And of the 500 people I've spoken to in the last few months, I asked the question, of the last 12 months, how many months have you been unable to run because of a running-related injury? Or running on an injury which you subsequently found out you shouldn't have been running on, and 35% of people said between sort of more than four months of the last 12. So I feel like it's a big meteor challenge to solve. We don't know exactly how we're going to solve it yet, but we've got a good hypothesis that we'll start by helping runners who have an event in the future and and limiting injury, and helping them get back on track in the best way possible. We're lucky that the advisors and equity partners that have attracted to the business. Unfortunately, I can't announce yet, but they are absolutely some of the most published, best regarded, leading researchers and practitioners in the field. So we'll get people back to running as quickly and as well as we can before, I hope, helping people to reset their relationship with running. My dream, my mission for this business is to help people to enjoy a lifelong, loving, harmonious relationship with running. So, you know, and and optimize not for your pace over the last 10 kilometers, but rather how old you will be when you have to hang up your trainers for the last time, because I'm not sure anyone's really helping with that at the moment. We're all being encouraged to run in a way which is pretty unsustainable and kind of punishing, punishing to our bodies, punishing to our minds. And I think there's a better way. I love that. It's so exciting. And two things that are giving me a huge lift at the moment, or rather sort of a lot of my fuel. One is coming from the reaction from runners that we speak to, either those who've got an injury history, which is oh, it's kind of all of us people. There's <laughs> a joke, if you want to quickly strike up a relationship with a runner, just say, so how's the injury? And you've suddenly got an hour's conversation. <laughs> So the reaction we're getting from runners who are currently injured, which is kind of, it's your classic sort of shut up and take my money reaction. Best thing that happens to me this year.
0: Yeah.
1: And I know that that could sound a bit glib and it might sound like a first world problem that we're solving. But yeah, this is, it's a great source of people's sanity and pride, I think is their running habit. So that reaction is really energizing. And what I also love is in speaking with sports physios, and osteos and chiros and running coaches and strength and conditioning coaches and so on, is that there's just universal agreement that this is what people need. I just feel that that industry, full of wonderful, dedicated, customer-centric people, though it is, haven't quite figured out how to move that knowledge, move that understanding of how runners should be behaving outside of the echo chamber and into runners' lives. So the disconnect between what really professionals universally agree should be happening And the way that people are behaving is enormous and i'm very excited about that so we have we have a landing page at vitalstride.com and we are going to start working with our first cohort of of beta customers fairly shortly so if anyone's interested you know they should give us their email address and we will let them know when we're ready to get cracking
0: i can think of five friends off the top of my head actually so i'll (laughs) send you them all after this so just before we wrap up two final questions One is, what do you think are the learnings that you've had from the previous ventures that are going to shortcut you on this one? So Mm. has it been faster to start or are there mistakes that you've made now that you know you don't have to make again that will help you go faster?
1: I mean, the, the lessons we've touched on them, but the first is that it's cheap or free to develop a deep deep, detailed understanding of your market and your user needs and how they're being served and what's wrong with the current solutions. And that there is, I don't think, ever an argument to do that after raising money. Once you raise money, you kind of fire the starting gun and you need to start progressing certain metrics. So get a deep, deep, detailed, empathetic, loving relationship with your future customers before thinking about things like raising money that's a big one generally to to be slow in raising money actually slow and intentional and choiceful and i think you know now that i have some personal wealth from previous businesses that's easier of course but i certainly yeah even if i didn't i think i'd be less hasty to raise significant money uh, millions you know in, in the early years prior to product market fit and the other thing do you know this is the first time i've ever built a business with a co-founder I've been a sole founder in, in every business that I've built so far. My lesson there is to never do it without <laughs> I'm working with a lady called Helen and the experience is just wonderful. The speed of decision making, ability to challenge and be challenged, being able to plug a, you know, some of my enormous behavioral and skills gaps. <laughs> with someone who's just exceptional at the things that I'm I'm really terrible at. It's, just, it's a wonderful thing. So a big lesson is to, to co-found, I think. Yeah.
0: I love that. And I, I think also having a female co-founder, particularly in a physical business, really helps when you think about the different physicalities that sometimes it's easy, you know, we design for our own bodies otherwise, to have that inclusivity in the founding team. In my mind, will make such a difference when you come to actually design and solution.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'm a brother of two sisters and I am a dad of three daughters and gender issues are really on my mind. I try to be the best feminist I possibly can be. I'm not, honestly, I don't think I do a great job yet, but I'm trying. I'm trying really hard and I'm trying to educate myself. And what I would say is, it's a, yes, I completely agree. Having a female co-founder is a great thing. But actually, you know, a conversation she and I had very early on, was you know who, who do we intend to serve with this business and the answer was recreational runners and that's a, a hugely diverse group of people ranging from you well actually <laughs> name it on every basis you know it crosses uh, gender income sexuality nationality religion everybody runs <laughs> And so diversity is going to be critical. And we've had some really interesting conversations about how we should be building diversity into our team, and given that it's two people and it will be four at some point. And that's actually quite a tough thing to do, especially in the very early days, building diversity into a team without losing any sort of ferocious focus on performance and meritocracy is something that we've had actually some amazing conversations about, and we're doing, again, doing the best we can. Yeah, it's terrific. I love
0: it. I think it's also really rare or sadly rare that we have that conversation at the beginning of founding something. You often have it when you realize you've missed the element of diversity and you're desperately trying to plug a gap, or even too late when someone else points out you've missed it because you hadn't even noticed it or seemed to miss it. But actually, to stop at the point of founding when you've still got the control in your first team members, because that's something you only get once. Actually, stopping Mm. at the start and saying, we want to engineer in diversity. We want to build for diversity. It's incredible to hear you say that that's something that you're engineering for.
1: Mm, It's something we're very cognizant of. And I'm certain that we'll build a, a stronger business if we succeed in delivering on that.
0: Amazing. And so final question, are there any corporates that you'll be looking to partner with for the venture? And if yes, how do you think your experience in corporate innovation will change how you navigate
1: them. I've done a sweep of the market looking at people that I think smell like a good fit. And at this stage, we're not going to look to partner with any corporates. And the reason for that is, as far as I can tell, none which are in a strategically relevant space for this business have addressed the problems that I listed earlier. However, I do know that you know most of these more complex bleeding edge problems, you know, corporates are solving behind closed doors. So what I would say to your community is that if I've made a mistake, and if I've missed something, please, please reach out, educate me. I am fully bought into the idea that startup behavior and corporate assets could be a devastating combination. I've just yet to see an example of it being done well live in the market. But hey, I'd love to, be, I would love to be the first.
0: <laughs> so we'll end on that call to arms. And I so look forward to seeing where it goes. Thank you so much for making the time to share all your learnings.
1: Oh, it's been great. It's been really enjoyable, educational, and, and at times cathartic. So thank you very much indeed.
0: <laughs> so that's what we aim for. Thanks so yeah. much, David. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Adventures in Ventureland. We hope you enjoyed listening as much as we enjoyed recording. If you did, please do take a minute to like, rate and subscribe so you never miss another episode.